our equal opportunities, our dignity, our mental health, all of the different things, our feelings, the words they love to use, that doesn't matter. What matters to the people in the White House, the Biden administration, what matters to them is protecting the feelings of a male, even if it means we become collateral damage in the process, which we most certainly have. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. We're a year or so into doing this show, and, and every week I get the pleasure of interviewing great Americans. Some of them, as you know, are elected officials. Some of them, like me, run think tanks. I think the most important ones, the, the ones who are the most encouraging, the ones who are most inspiring, are what I call everyday Americans who weren't exactly looking to do what they're doing, but they answered the call, the call not just to help this country, but also the call from above. That is, their faith, their understanding of the truth has encouraged them to step up for all of us. And I mean it when I say it. I can't think of a, a better American who personifies that right now in this generation than our guest this week. And that is the 12-time All-American swimmer, great American, Riley Gaines. Riley, thanks for joining me. Well, I am so honored to join you um, in that introduction. Uh, it's so kind, and it really couldn't be more true in terms of at least how this is something I never wanted. It's really still not something I want. Um, but here we are trying really to just turn lemons into lemonade, uh, doing everything I can to help make positive impact. And so I, I really appreciate that. Well, you don't need to hear it from me because you, you keep a, a really serious travel schedule and a lot of ordinary Americans get to tell you this themselves. But I hear from my own daughters, from my sisters who, like you, were were in were athletes, but also just everybody. I mean, men, older men, younger men. If Kevin, if you ever run into Riley Gaines, just tell her thanks, because I think people can intuit or sometimes if they're following the news, they know that you've taken a lot of barbs for this courageous stand. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this show in amplifying your story is to hear a little bit about your your journey, because as you just said, and and as you mentioned when we first met briefly last year at an independent women's forum event, you weren't looking to do this. I mean, this, this isn't something where you decided you wanna go down this path. And the reason I mentioned that, I think is the same reason that you emphasize that a lot in your public comments, and that is to inspire others, that maybe if you succeed in inspiring others on this issue and maybe on others, in five, 10, 15, 20 years, the next generation of college-age Americans won't have to fight as hard as you've had to fight. So thank you. You're, you're now an advisor for the Independent Women's Voice, and you've got your, your own show, which is great. And I always like to start with sort of an informal conversation and ask you, how is it you got to do what you're doing, not just the advocacy that you're involved in now, but even your journey as such a competitive and successful swimmer? Absolutely. Um, and I think this question is really important, especially for those who, who didn't play sports at the highest level uh, to really understand just what went into it. And so I started swimming when I was four years old. Um, and I, of course, I swam all the way through college, uh, graduated at 22. So this means I dedicated 18 years of my short now 23 year old life to my sport, um, which, of course, means your, you know, your sports specific training like your swimming. Uh, but also weightlifting and diet and sleep schedule, uh, not to mention, you know, the social sac uh, sorry, social sacrifices you have to make. Uh, you don't get to go to prom. 
You don't get to have sleepovers with your friends on Friday night because guess what? Saturday morning at 6 a.m. you have practice. You don't get to go on family vacations. Uh, God forbid we took one day out of the water. Oh my gosh, never mind a week to go to the beach or something. That that just simply didn't happen. Um, our vacation was when you got to go somewhere cool for a swim meet. But really all that entailed was going to the pool, going to the hotel to nap, going back to the pool, getting dinner, going going back to sleep. Um, and that's that's really what my days looked like through middle school, high school, even college. Uh, college, we were... You know, we were swimming six hours every single day with three, with three of those hours being before 8 a.m. Um, so you practice from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, same story. You go to school. You come back from class. You go swim again from 1.30 to 4.30. You ate dinner at old people time, 4.45, because we were starving. Um, you went to bed. You did it all again the next day. We were swimming 10 miles every day at least. Uh, not to mention, again, the weightlifting we had on top of that. We swam 14 times per week, I think. Uh, so a lot a lot of practicing. Um, but again, no one forced us to. We knew we had to do that if we wanted to compete and especially be successful at the highest level, which I'm, I'm very fortunate to say that I was. Um, I proudly finished my career as a 12-time NCAA All-American, um, a five-time SEC champion, I'm actually the SEC record holder in the 200 butterfly, making me one of the fastest Americans of all time. Um, Two-time Olympic trial qualifier. I was the SEC scholar athlete of the year, SEC community service leader of the year. Uh, Both things I I also felt very passionately about. Um, But really what got me to where I am now, because I had every intention upon graduation to go to dental school. Um, I'd already accepted my C. I put my deposit down. I, I scored in the top percentile of the DAT, which is the dental admissions test to get into dental school. Um, that's what I thought I was going to be doing. But really, I realized the quickest way to make God laugh in your face is to make plans for yourself. It's so true. He, he very evidently had different plans for me. And so what got me here? Um, my senior year. I had made a goal to win a national title because my junior year, the year prior, I finished seventh in the country. And so when I finished seventh, I was very proud of this. You know, you're top eight, you're an All-American. But I knew my senior year what I wanted to do, and that was be the best. Set my goal right then and there. And I was right on pace to achieve that. Until about the middle of my senior season, I'm ranked third in the country behind one girl who I knew very well. Uh, trailing, you know, a few one hundreds, tenths of a second behind her. She was in second. But this person who was leading the country, I'd never heard of before. And this is the first time I became aware of a swimmer named Leah Thomas. And so there was a lot of red flags. You know, this was a senior. They were from University of Pennsylvania. Never heard of them. Uh, they were leading the country by body lengths, which is a lot in swimming. In multiple events, it, it was, who is this? You know, I'm looking up this name. There's no history of this person. Um, but it didn't make sense until an article came out. And in this article, it very briefly disclosed that Leah Thomas is formerly Will Thomas and swam three years on the men's team at University of Pennsylvania before deciding to switch to the women's team. And when I read this, I, of course I was shocked, but really I felt a sense of relief because I went to look up who Will Thomas was because I was curious, like we all were. You know, was this someone who went from ranking first to now continuing to rank first against the women? Which is, of course, not what we saw. We saw this was a mediocre male, at best, ranking 462nd the year prior when competing against the men. Um, And so 
I naively thought the NCAA would see it how I saw it in my parents and my teammates and my coaches and how anyone with any amount of brain activity would probably see this. But the NCAA did not. They saw nothing wrong with it. And they told us that Thomas swimming with the women was a non-negotiable. That was the, the verbiage they used. And so I watched as Thomas swam to a national title, uh, beating out Olympians, beating out American record holders, the most impressive swimmers, female swimmers this world has ever seen, again, by body lengths. And so that next day of competition was the day that Thomas and I raced in the 200 freestyle. And almost impossibly enough, and this is how I know God has his hand on it, almost impossibly enough, we tied so we went the exact same time down to the hundredth of a second, which, which is, you know, pretty rare when you're racing for a minute and 40 seconds, and not even one one hundredth separated us. And so I get out of the water. This is what thrusted me over the edge, really, this portion. And so we get out of the water. We go behind the awards podium where the official looks at both Thomas and myself and says, Thomas was towering over me at six foot four, by the way. Uh, the official says, great job, uh, you two, but you guys tied. And we only have one trophy. So we're giving this trophy to Leah. Uh, sorry, Riley, but you have to go home empty-handed. And I asked the question that no one dared ask all season. And I said, why? You know, I know we tied. I know we don't necessarily account for ties, but why are you adamant on giving this, this trophy to Thomas? And his face, it, 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 I remember it distinctly. It softened and it saddened. And I could tell that this official... He didn't even believe what he was about to say, but he knew he had to say it. And he looked at me with his sunken in eyes and he said, you know what? They've advised us when pictures are being taken that Leah has to have the trophy. Riley, you can pose with this one, but again, you have to give yours back. Leah takes the trophy home, end of story. And so it was that experience. Of course, I knew all season what was happening was wrong. I knew the unfair competition and the locker room and the silencing. I knew all of that was wrong. We all did. But it wasn't until they really reduced everything that we had worked our entire lives for down to a photo op to validate the feelings and the identity of a male. It wasn't until that that ultimately I realized I was done waiting because I was. I was waiting for someone else to do it. I thought surely a coach would do it. I thought surely someone's dad would come in that locker room and take this man out with his own hands. I thought surely some other swimmer, someone with political power, someone who was supposed to be protecting us would protect us. But then I remember I had this realization and it slapped me across the face when I'm standing on this podium, holding this trophy that I know I have to give back, sharing this podium again with this man who's, who's obviously a man towering over me. And I had this realization that if we as women, we as female athletes, if we weren't willing to stick up for ourselves, we can't expect someone else to stick up for us. We can't be standing on this podium, smiling and, and applauding this person hoping some hero steps in. No, why would they? We need to do this ourselves. And so that's, that's really my journey. Um, that's, of course, a simplified version. I could talk about the, all of the different aspects of it for hours. Um, but that's really what led me to where I am now. Um, I saw what was at stake if someone did it. Well, I, I'm grateful to you not only for, for what you've done, but also for telling that, that story again, because some members of of the audience, if they're like me, will have forgotten some details of that. I now remember that you tied. I remember vividly seeing that picture of you standing with him and and turning to my wife because we were following the story by this point and saying, it's an outrage that no one has stood up on behalf of, of Riley Gaines and on behalf of, 
all of female, all female athletes, but even beyond that, just on behalf of common sense and the truth. And and yet what you say, as outrageous as that is, that that's lack of courage, and I'll even be blunt and say that cowardice from some, as ridiculous as that is, I can only imagine that in that moment and in the moments and days that followed, that your your resolve was was really steeled and and knowing I've heard you speak several times about the importance of your faith in this I I imagine but tell me if I'm wrong that that has been your faith obviously your family your friends all of that has has provided not just solace for a, a situation that's really difficult I mean this is a real not just a loss in competition for you but a loss of of what you were aspiring to do for so many years as you described but it also was an encouragement to stand up for what's right. And I think that's the real breaking point, or the breakthrough, I should say, for this issue and for others. So tell me about you know other episodes in, in the weeks and months that followed that were really encouraging. We're going to get into some, what I presume are some difficult moments, but I'd like for the audience to, to hear some encouragement from you about, about your story that might translate to situations therein. Absolutely. Um, and again, I think this is really important because if you just if you just watched the media, the news, and if you just saw how politicians voted, you would think this is really divisive. You would think this is something that would surely get you canceled, something that um, would follow you the rest of your life and you would be on the wrong side of history. They love to use use that that phrase. You're on the wrong side of history. But let me tell you what I have realized that could not be further from the truth. Um, I first came to this conclusion, you know, I, I took kind of that leap of faith and decided, you know, I would go against what my university was asking me to do. They wanted me to stay quiet. Um, and I knew I couldn't do it anymore. The amount of private messages that I got from people I'd looked up to my entire life, people who I considered my heroes who would message me, you know, and, and this wasn't just limited to female athletes, even, even male athletes, you know, parents, coaches, the amount of coaches I had messaging me, athletic directors, um, even medical professionals who, who had felt silenced. I remember specifically people who I knew very well, uh, really renowned people. They were messaging me and saying, you know, thank you for doing what you're doing. Keep going. And at first I was really humbled by this, you know, as it kind of continued and, and more and more thanks messages of gratitude rolled in. Um, I felt really honored, you know, I'm doing something that's right. But then the arrows began to cut or began to came began to come, sorry. Um, and it was kind of just a lot of backlash all at once. And I remember thinking, why do I have to take these arrows by myself? I'm, I'm essentially being a megaphone for so many, but why aren't they saying something? And so I began to ask people, uh, just kind of straight up, you know, would you be willing to take a public stance in this? And each and every person said, you know, uh, coaches, especially athletic directors, they told me, you know, oh, well, we can't have lawsuits. Parents, who, who were scared to defend their daughters, they told me, oh, you know, well, I work in corporate America and, you know, I, I really can't lose my job. I'm sorry, but keep going. And so I say this actually as a message of encouragement. No, we are in the overwhelming majority. Again, if you just saw how politicians voted, you wouldn't think so, but we are. Even the overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party knows this is wrong. Yet you see in the U.S. House of Representatives just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, 219 Republicans voted in favor of protecting women's sports and every single Democrat, all 203 of them voted in opposition. 
it fell entirely on party lines. But let me tell you again, that's not representative of how the, the general public really feels. Uh, so know we're in the majority. Two, messages of encouragement. Know that it is liberating to say the truth. Once you don't have to adhere to the guidelines and the authority figures and all of those different external or sometimes even internal pressures, it feels like a weight is off of your shoulders. And look, I'm talking about the most basic of truths, right? It's the sheer essence of humanity, man and woman. And they're asking us to deny that. And if you think about that, that's pretty Orwellian. They're trying to make us say two plus two is five, but we know it's not. And once you can say it out loud, you'll understand that it's freeing. Uh, you'll understand you, you can never go back. Um, and I want to touch on what you mentioned about the faith aspect of it and how that's kept me grounded, how that's kept me motivated to move forward. Really what it is, we're on this earth for such a short period of time in the grand scheme of things, if you look at what eternity means. And it's our job as Christians, as humans on this earth, to spread his message. Um, we know who wins this battle, which is the most amazing thing. And we know that we're on the winning side as Christians, if you follow his word, if you obey him. Um, I'm just trying to, to do that. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know how long we have to endure this. But again, we know who wins. Thanks for your witness, Riley, in, in every respect. One one part of, of that witness, as you, as you touched on a little bit, is coming up with the, the, the approach to all the naysayers, and not just on social media, but, but I, I, I gather also in person, you have been confronted with a lot of naysayers, you know, people who call you things that you should, no one should ever be called for that matter. What's what? What was the worst of those, and 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 how do you each morning wake up and and sort of steel yourself with with the resolve to to ignore that? You know, I, I talk to other people, whether they're elected officials or people like you who are are have become icons of our culture who deal with all of the arrows, and and each of those men and women has some approach to saying I just ignore it all, or I try to be humorous about it. The reason I ask that question isn't just curiosity about how you do it, but also for our audience members who, who are looking to you for advice on, on dealing with this, for them to be able to step up knowing that there's a way to deal with that. A little bit of both of those things you mentioned, uh, to a degree, again, I mentioned the overwhelming support, and it, it is, it's tenfold anything negative, but the negative does come. But you know what? It weighed heavy on me at first. Um, when people were saying things, because me, as, a, as especially as a female, right, we tend to be people pleasers. We tend to want people to to like us and to to you know we want to be approachable and respectful and all those different things. And I always have been that person. Um, and so when people were saying these awful, hateful things about me, which I knew in my heart weren't true, it stuck. But I noticed a theme. I noticed a theme with these these negative comments. And it was all name calling. It was all these petty personal attacks, right? They would tell me, you should have just trained harder. Maybe you should have swam faster. Okay, that's not dissuading from my argument. They would say, oh, you know, they would say something about my physical appearance. Oh, well, you're just ugly. Okay, well, that is also just a personal attack. It's just, it's, it's again, not dissenting from my viewpoints of my argument. 
They would say other things, you know, they'd call you transphobic, homophobic, racist, white supremacist, domestic terrorists, a fascist, nothing that was based in reality. And once I was able to put these pieces together, I realized that's all it is. Because on our side of this argument, as it pertains to women's sports, we have truth. We have common sense. We have logic. We have reasoning. We have science, right? Follow the science. Remember when they would say that? Okay, well, we have that on our side. Um, and they know that. And that's why they resort to the name calling. And I also noticed a trend of who was saying these things. It was people who had never played a sport in their entire lives. These people don't know the value of sports outside of even just the athletic achievement, the leadership that it gives you, the confidence, the resiliency it teaches you. They don't understand it's, it's bigger than just the trophy. They're, they can't, they're not grasping that. Um, so, so once I realized those things, I was able to better ignore them, um, kind of tune them out. I, I wasn't looking to please them. You know, as I mentioned, we're people pleasers. Why would I want to please those people? Uh, we have an audience of one, as I, as I had mentioned previously, that's who we should be looking to please. And once I was able to come to terms with that, I have grown in confidence. It, it's really skyrocketed. When I first started speaking about this, I felt like I had to adhere to the pronoun nonsense. I felt like I had to say she, and I did. And I, and admittedly, I hate that. I hate that I, I kind of cowered in that way. But I think, again, not to say that it really has been a journey, a journey of self-realization, a journey of the bigger picture, right? Because it, even something I noticed recently that I've thought about and processed what this really means now that I understand, we keep referring to ourselves as biological females or biological male. And I adhered for a long time. You know, I'm a biological female. While that's true, saying biological female is, it's alluding to the fact that there's an unbiological alternative. And there's not. It's little things like that, how they control the language. We can't continue to allow that to happen. And so again, it's, it's been a, a journey of understanding the bigger picture of even the small things. Um, small things within myself that have allowed me to flourish, have allowed me to develop in ways that I didn't know that I would develop passions that I didn't know I necessarily had. But now, more so than just someone who avidly wants to protect women's sports, I avidly want to stand for the truth in whatever capacity that is, whatever topic that is. There is one objective truth. There is one biblical truth. You know, the left, they love this language of speak your truth. Okay, there's one truth. We can speak one truth and agree on it, um, or I guess disagree, but that's not up for debate. And so I'm standing by the truth, regardless of whatever topic it is. And if backlash comes my way in the process, so be it. I'm secure with myself. One truth with a capital T, right? And, uh, and, and I mean, you're not that you have to hear from me, but your, your comportment about that is so cheerful. It's, I know that it's, you're, you're winning people over, you're encouraging people. And, and so I love your entire response, but in particular, a, a really important point you make about language. And one of the things I've learned in my career in the classroom, a professor and in public policy that is dealing with a lot of people on the left 
is they try to control language and they're they're very as you've discovered they're very insidious about it and so you don't even know that it's happening and you realize all of a sudden as you said you're using the phrase biological male biological female and and we just shouldn't say that there are men and there are women and and even here at heritage just to let you and our audience know that you know sometimes we fall into this trap even though we're very attuned to it um we had to stop using the phrase gender affirming care because that's 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 part of the language trap as well, right? Because that's language from the left. And it doesn't mean that you're intolerant or that you're hateful. Quite the opposite. I mean, just just follow how how you provide your witness on this, and that's obvious. And all of that points to the the topic I want to cover next, which is that we're beginning to win on this issue. I mean, that, that's the conclusion that I've reached, and not that you seek credit for this, but you've been a really important advocate, someone who has encouraged policymakers. One of my friends in politics is Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, and I know that he was really encouraged by your willingness to lean into the law that was passed there. You've been present there. You've been present other places. But just give us a synopsis of where you think we are in, in this battle on this issue. Yes, we are winning. Um, day by day, people are becoming more bold. They're becoming more empowered. Again, how, how this has translated beyond just sports, it's in academia, it's in corporate America, it's in the medical profession, it's in, um, in churches. Oh my goodness. Uh, so it's really transcended. But I think the more people see this happen, the more they, they start to understand how this directly impacts them and their families, people are becoming more bold. Um, which is a blessing because we are winning. Um, now, 23 states have passed some sort of fairness in women's sports bill, as you mentioned, Texas, uh, North Carolina being the most recent, uh, which is really great news. Um, so 23 states, which might not sound like a ton, but just three years ago, only one state had, and that was Idaho. And so we've, we've made a lot of coverage in the last three years. That's only going to continue. Um, on top of that, at the state level, we have a new bill that is implemented in three states as of this year. Um, I really helped propel this bill alongside uh, the Independent Women's Forum, um, Independent Women's Voice. It's called the Women's Bill of Rights, which is so crazy. This is just a law that defines the word woman. Um, I can't believe we have to have this. Granted, we have a sitting Supreme Court justice who doesn't even know what a woman is because she claims she's not a biologist. Uh, guess what? I'm not a veterinarian, but I know what a dog is. That's the silliest reason ever to not know what a woman is, especially being a woman herself. But anyways, uh, the Women's Bill of Rights, this has been passed in Kansas and then Tennessee, and most recently by executive order from Governor Stitt in Oklahoma. Um, going to continue their um, state legislature, very important. At the federal level, we have this beautiful federal civil rights law called Title IX. Uh, just a short 37 words, but it, what it does is it stops for, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex on college campuses. We have an administration in the White House right now who is changing Title IX to where it's no longer preventing discrimination on the basis of sex, it's preventing discrimination on the basis of gender identity. And again, this, this is larger than just women's sports. This means men can join sororities. This means men will have full access to bathrooms, locker rooms, changing spaces. This means men um, could take academic and athletic scholarships away from women. Um, a lot men can live in dorm rooms with women. So it, it's bigger than just women's sports. Um, doing everything I can to combat 
that and what that looks like working alongside Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama to put forth legislation on the Senate side that would uphold Title IX, Representative Greg Subi on the House side. Um, so work being done there. But that's the message they're sending to girls and women. Again, the people leading this country, the people in charge, the people who once prided themselves on advocating for women and celebrating and honoring and recognizing women on our own physical ceilings and our own uniqueness. The message they're sending to us is that we don't matter, is that our privacy in areas of undressing, where let me tell you, we felt violated, we felt humiliated, we felt betrayed, we felt belittled. Areas of undressing our privacy, that doesn't matter. Our safety and our sports, sports where physical contact, such as volleyball, you know, softball, anything where you're running and colliding with one another, they're telling us our safety doesn't matter. Our equal opportunities, our dignity, our mental health, all of the different things, our feelings, the words they love to use, that doesn't matter. What matters to the people in the White House, the Biden administration, what matters to them is protecting the feelings of a male even if it means we become collateral damage in the process, which we most certainly have. Um, so that's what that looks like. There's a lot of layers to this onion. There's also the, the work being done within the specific sport governing bodies. Now FINA, which is the international governing body of swimming, World Athletics, which is track and field, cycling, um, IPF, which is the International Powerlifting Federation. Uh, most recently, actually, is the World Chess Association, which I think this is kind of interesting. They've all taken a stand saying that if you've gone through male puberty, you can't compete with women. Um, it's the first time we've really seen large governing bodies prioritize fairness. Um, and these policies, by no means, they're not necessarily perfect. Uh, they're certainly not that, but they're prioritizing fairness. And it's something that we should appreciate the little wins in order to get to the, the bigger win, which would be um, stopping all males from competing in women's sports and entering into single-sex spaces. So for the ordinary American who's wondering you know, what they can do to help, one of the things we try to do, not just at Heritage generally, but in this show specifically, is, is give them a sense of one or two things they can do, what, maybe next steps, homework assignments. What comes to mind where, where someone listening to this conversation is saying, I want to help Riley Gaines with what she's working on, I want to do that locally or at the state level or get involved at the federal level. What comes to your mind? First and foremost, I do think it's important to know where your state stands. Um, and you can have a pretty good idea of which state you live in. If you live in a blue state, uh, it's, it's likely they haven't passed any sort of fairness of women's sports bill. So knowing where that stands, it's important to contact your, your representative or your state senator. Let them know how you feel as a constituent. Um, I can't promise they'll act on it, but it's really important. Um, but secondly, parents, especially parents, grandparents, be willing to defend your daughters. Uh, this conversation, this battle, it's fallen entirely for the most part on the shoulders of young girls and women. We're expected to know what to do. We're expected to boycott. We're expected to stand up for ourselves. And while I, I agree to a degree, I think there's value in that. And I, I think we do have to take action. Um, we need parents. We need parents to be willing to defend their daughters. But that being said, I think it's, as I mentioned, it falls, this conversation, it centers, centers around girls and women. And I think we can beg the question, which is a very valid question, of where are the feminists? Where are the women who claimed 
to defend women. And while that, again, is something we should be asking ourselves, I think we should be asking ourselves the question of where are the men? And so parents, along with defending your daughters, teach your sons masculinity. Teach your sons how to be strong men. Teach your, your sons to fulfill their biblical role, which is to protect and provide. And there's this, there's this saying, and it's hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And it's so interesting because you can see it play out throughout history and not even just in our civilization, in any civilization. And we're certainly in the part of the process now where weak men have created hard times. I think the last time we had a society full of strong men was in the 1940s during World War II. And I, I had this, this thought that during that time, we had men lying about their age to enlist in the war. And now we have men lying about their sex to get into women's sports, which shows you just how true this cycle is. Um, so again, we're in the part where weak men have created hard times, which we can only hope these hard times garner strong men again, but we need to expedite this process. And so parents teach your sons masculinity, teach them to, of course, uphold and honor and respect women, but teach them how to be strong men. We need more strong men. Um, so those are kind of my calls to action. And again, above anything, um, what should be scarier to us than the cancel culture? then the name calling what should be scarier than that is not standing firm in the truth. And so don't shy away from the conversation. Don't feel like you have to compromise. Don't feel like you have to pander because I did. And I realized that you don't have to do those things. You have to be firm by doing those things. That's how we got here. That's how we got to the point where we're at. And silence is complicity at this point. Um, so be vocal be empowered. And again, know that we're in the majority and feeling the way that we feel. Uh, this has just, the pendulum has swung too far and it really has no sustainability. Um, but girls shouldn't have to be hurt or injured or exploited in locker rooms in the meantime, while we wait for this to, to figure itself out. What a, what a wonderful call to action, especially the indictment of where we are culturally in our attitudes toward both women and men, but particularly, as you, as you say, weak men, I, I realized being on post here, <clears throat> excuse me, being on post here at Heritage for a couple of years that in all of the different public policy issues we cover, that that's really the context for so many of them. We won't we have to go through the list now, but the, the point is that until and unless as a society, as a culture, we address that. And sort of the core of the issue that you're confronting every day, then what we're doing with with school choice, what we're doing with tax policy, foreign policy, whatever it is, it's going to be a huge challenge. And yet, you know, both implicit and explicit in your comments and and in your witness is a tremendous hopefulness that we use this show to kind of bring to people, not the hollow optimism that you and I would both hate, but the kind of optimism that's real, that's rooted in the plan. And so I really appreciate your call to action. So I'll ask you one final question, and that is, what's the future hold for Riley Gaines? Five, 10 years down the road, what do you think you'll be doing? You know, it's interesting because I've really tried to have a, because all of this, oh my goodness, it is so day by day. Um, so I've really tried to to keep it on a at least my vision again because I know how God works and He He changes things and so I've gotten to this point where I'm like, do I even make plans anymore, God, or do I just do I just trust you? And so I'm I um I don't know 
you know, do I eventually, if this was curbed, let's say this was fixed tomorrow, the entire issue, uh, would I go back to dental school? I don't know. Um, I have people all the time tell me I should run for office, run for Congress, do something of that nature, but I'll be totally frank. I don't know how much that interests me. Um, that's a, that's a, um, that's a sticky, slimy game. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm up for it quite yet. Um, so we'll see. But in the meantime, I, I certainly, I, I think this issue, it has a shelf life, but it's certainly for the foreseeable future, especially if we don't get a new administration in the white house, uh, which I'm confident, hopeful that we will. Um, I'm dedicated to fighting this. Um, I have a little sister. She's a phenomenal athlete, a Tennessee state champion for gymnastics. That's what keeps me going. Uh, I just got married and I can only hope to have a daughter of my own one day. And I can't imagine being in the position that I'm in and not fighting for her. Um, so I'm certainly gonna move forward with full steam, um, doing what I can, using my platform, to help make positive change. Riley Gaines, thanks for your dedication from uh, one American to another. I'm really grateful for what you're doing, especially as a dad of a bunch of girls and brother of some sisters, but really for every single American. Thanks for your courage. Thanks for your hopefulness. Thanks for your witness to God's truth. You know this already, but I'll say it. All of us at Heritage are your friends. Uh, we're happy to be your part of your support network and, uh, and we'll encourage you every step of the way. For those of you in the audience, thanks for listening or watching this, this episode. I told you that we would be engaged in some hopefulness, which is what we try to do every week. But Riley, I think I can speak for our audience and say, of all of the guests we've had on the show up to this point, you really set a new standard for that cheerfulness. God bless you. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you and the work that you guys do. So thank you. You bet. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.